Hello, hello. Welcome to the Strategy of Finance podcast, where we celebrate the profession and the professionals in the world of finance. These unsung heroes mostly remain away from limelight, but contribute tremendously towards company building. We endeavor to unpack their journeys to understand what moves them, get inspired by their triumphs, learn from their experiences, and most of all, connect with them at a personal level. I'm your host, Rohit Agarwal, and besides this podcast, my full-time duties include building Creo, the unified operating system for corporate spend. We are bringing together the whole journey of spend so you can buy, pay, and manage all your corporate spends from one single platform. Do check us out at www.krayo.io. Without further ado, let's tune in to learn, grow, and inspire. I am thrilled to introduce our guest for today's episode. With a rich experience of over two decades in the realm of operation excellence and value creation, Pete Boyce is currently an esteemed operating partner at Thoma Bravo, one of the best investment firms globally focused on software or SaaS companies. Today, Pete works hand-in-hand with multiple Thoma Bravo portfolio companies and guides their CFOs and finance departments on strategic as well as tactical matters. In my view, Pete is the perfect example of a successful private company CFO. Being a serial CFO, he has scaled his experience along with his companies with each role. His impressive track record includes influential stints at companies such as Zigo, which was notably acquired by Global Payments, Soesta, taken over by Akamai Technologies, and ID Analytics, which found its new home with Symantec through LifeLock. Before these standout roles, Pete honed his skills as a technology investment banker, facilitating a multitude of M&A and corporate finance transactions across a vast spectrum of companies. In his last role as a CFO at Zigo, a company backed by Vista Equity, Pete was a key catalyst in orchestrating both organic and acquisition-driven revenue growth, culminating in a successful exit to global payments. Demonstrating his abilities and leadership, Pete seamlessly transitioned to the role of GM post-acquisition spearheading Zigo's integration into the integrated software division at Global Payments. An alumnus of the University of Southern California, Pete did his BA in International Relations and then pursued an MBA. Let's end this wait and dive deep into his journey and insights. Pete, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time and glad to have you here. Thanks, Rahid. Glad to be here. All right. Let's dive in with a little bit of your background. So tell us, how did you make your way into this amazing world of finance and became a CFO? Yeah, so maybe similar to a lot of others, I started in accounting, got out of college, actually not with an accounting degree, but got hired into an accounting firm, ironically, who put me through the accounting paces. And that's how I got going in it. I would say, though, that I did that for about a couple of years. And I remember being on an accounting assignment where a company, a client of mine was getting acquired. And I was doing the accounting diligence on one side of the table. There's a whole host of investment bankers on the other side of the table doing all this crazy finance modeling and having these really interesting conversations. And I remember talking to a few of them and said, hey, I want to do what you guys are doing. I don't want to do what I'm doing today. And so that led me to go back to graduate school and get an MBA that allowed me to enter the world of investment banking. And that led to a 10-year 
career in investment banking, technology investment banking, software and analytics were some of the subsectors that I played in. And ultimately uh, then transitioned in 2008 for a 10 year career of that. And that's what transitioned me into sort of the, the role of the CFO, which, which I've been doing for the last 15 years, um, predominantly through private equity and venture backed software and technology businesses. Very cool. Certainly a similar transition as I've made. Tell us maybe how was moving from banking to the operational role of a CFO? What were you thinking? Did the opportunity present itself or you were actively thinking about moving on the operational side? What was the mindset in making that decision? Yeah, you know, it's always something that you thought about, but sometimes you need a push. And for me, the push was, you know, funny enough, we'll talk a little bit later about macroeconomic issues today. 2008 had its own set of challenges, if you recall. We hit that big, you know, air bubble or air pocket in the economy, and it was a great time to kind of revisit and say, hey, you know, the world is a mess right now. You know, investment banking is laying off folks. The economy is going, you know, in the wrong direction. It was a little bit of a tenuous time. And ironically, one of my uh, investment banking clients at the time, a CEO of, of an analytics company, asked if I would be interested in stepping in and taking a CFO role for one of their venture-backed companies. I had actually been trying to get my firm hired to represent that company to help them in strategic activities. And he just said, hey, can I just hire you instead of your firm? Long and the short of it, I said, this is a perfect time for me to transition. And so that's how it kind of came about. I, to your point, I, it's always something in the back of your head. I think anybody who's in investment banking and has worked those long hours and done all that work, you know, you sort of get to that 10 year mark and you say, am I ready to, to do another 10 years of this? Or is this the time to reset and think of something else? And for me, it was a combination of right time, right place and a economic situation that uh, helped me make that decision a little easier. Very interesting. Is it possible for you to give us maybe some context of how large an organization that was when you stepped in? And what was the journey there? Because it seems like yeah. you had a successful exit to a larger company there. Yeah, it wasn't a large organization, a couple hundred employees. It was generally the, uh, you know, as an investment banker, I was doing more of the small to middle market technology companies. So companies between 50 and 500 employees. So this was a couple hundred million employee business, maybe 40 million in revenue backed by some, you know, very good uh, Silicon Valley VCs. I had a lot to work with when I got there, which was good. But I had, to your point, I had been in, in banking and being in an operations environment and a company environment is very, very different. Although I had some accounting skills from back in the day, I didn't have a ton of accounting background as it related to running an organization. So the first thing I had to do was be honest with the management team, the CEO, and say, hey, look, you know, if you're looking for a sort of an accounting focused CFO, I'm not your guy. And, and I made that very clear because I kind of wanted to say, hey, here's what I am and here's what I'm not. So I didn't set the wrong expectations. And luckily for me, we had an amazing controller at the time who had the exact opposite desires that I had and said to me, I don't want to do what you do. And in fact, I'll take all the stuff that you don't like and I'll own that. And you can focus more being strategic and externally focused and and it was a perfect match for me as a first time yeah. CFO to, to pair that up. And ironically, that same controller dragged me into a second company about six years, seven years later. So that was a little bit of my intro to that, because being a CFO for the first time when you haven't grown up in accounting or FP&A in an organization is it's a learning curve, right? Just on how, you know, 
how you go about executive meetings, how you have to understand engineering and product and to learn, you know, how the sales cadence is going and to figure out how to bide your time in a more structured fashion than, than where I used to come from. Is there one particular thing that you perhaps wasn't anticipating uh, moving into that role that, you know, you got exposed to maybe in the first week, if not the first couple of days? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm kind of laughing because the people side of being in a corporation was something I, or an organization of that size, I hadn't experienced in good and bad. And what I mean by that is the amount of time and ultimately, I got much better at this than when I started to inspire, to empower, to communicate, to coach, to guide team members, not just on your own team, but you know, throughout the organization, listening to other folks vent about challenges they're having in their organization, trying to solve people problems, caught me off guard. I would have said, I just didn't, you know, I didn't expect that. And it wasn't just my organization. And every step of the way that I've been, realized in my finance role, my CFO role, Tend to, whether or not HR rolls into that function or not, you tend to spend a lot of time uh, in a positive way working on people issues. And, and I say that, and you know, I don't mean it as a, a bad word in issues, but people opportunities, uh, if it's coaching and learning, I would say that was probably my biggest eye opener was the amount of time spent on that. And I, and I also think, you know, coming from an investment banking or a, to a company perspective, the employees that work there have different goals and objectives. You know, if you sit down with someone in an organization that may have been there for 10 years and you ask them, hey, what's your career aspirations in the next three to five years? You're going to get a variety of answers. If you tend to ask someone in the investment banking world, hey, what's your career aspirations in the next three or five years? It's to conquer the world and to take my boss's job. And so there's a very different mindset that companies have in relation to where I came from. And I think that was the biggest eye opener. Suppose that first uh, stint as CFO, you continue to do two more such roles. Right. And then um, ended up becoming an operating partner at Toma Bravo, which is uh, undoubtedly one of the greatest uh, software investors uh, on the planet today. So maybe let's talk about the move from a CFO to the operating partner. It's almost like you are an advisor to other CFOs of uh, you know a few of the Toma Bravo portfolio companies. What led to that transition? How did you think about it? Yeah, you know, good question, because you don't, you know, you don't necessarily go down your career path thinking that's where you're going to end up. But what I would say, if I backtrack a little bit to the, the second and the third CFO role that I had, the second role that I had, and this is not uncommon, was a bigger business than the first role that I had. It was probably 50% larger. We had up to 350, 400 employees, 300 employees. And it had, you know, a little bit later stage VCs, a little bit different mindset because they were thinking about going public and Thought about a little differently. Then the third business I had was probably double or triple that size. We had close to 500 employees and 100 million of revenue. And, and this one was backed by another great private equity fund and best equity partners. And when I took that third CFO role, you know, I think one of the things that I, I would espouse to anybody is, and one of the reasons why I really wanted to take that role was to continue to learn. And I had a feeling um, working now for a larger software equity buyout shop, I was going to learn a lot. And I wanted to learn and understand different approaches to strategic finance and, and so on. So I was open-minded to say, hey, look, I know this is going to be a fun ride and I'm going to learn a lot and let's do that. And so that last role learned a lot about how to not just manage a finance organization under private equity ownership, but to manage a company under a private equity ownership and not just managing the P&L strategically, but managing sort of the organization 
helping out on sales operations, understanding the engineering and product development, developing talent, you know, all because you're looking to obviously four to five year investment cycle, hand off a great asset to the next buyer. And the more we created a lot of the infrastructure and built the systems in place that would enable this business to scale and to grow and to create value, the better opportunity you have for a buyer to pay more for it when it's their turn. And that's what I've in that last stint is really how to grow a business in all different facets of the organization, not just financially, build out the systems infrastructure so it can scale and ready it for its next journey, if you will. And I found that super exciting, fulfilling. And, you know, we did a lot of things right. We did a, a lot of things wrong, but we did more right than wrong in that case. And so when that company was sold to a big public company. You know, I had the opportunity to to stay on for a couple of years as the general manager of the same business unit that I was CFO of. And that's not uncommon, right? I think, you know, as we talk about CFOs today, half of the time you could say the CFO is acting as a COO and there's a lot of operational chops. And so when business was acquired and the existing CEO moved on, I was the logical choice by the next public company owner to step in and run the business. And so I did that for a while. Back to your Toma Bravo question, uh, they had reached out and said, hey, given your skill set and your career path and the experience that you had, we'd love to consider you as an operating partner. And it got my juices flowing again. I think that's the stuff that excites me is building teams, watching these businesses grow, taking these businesses from you know early investment stage to an exit. It sort of was the best of both worlds, my investment banking background combined with some operational but I get to do it at an operating partner level and it was super attractive for me. Makes a ton of sense. So that gives a good segue into discussing a little more on the role of a CFO, especially a modern CFO. It seems like the role has evolved quite a lot over the last uh, 15 to 20 years. Uh, so would love to understand from your perspective, how have you seen the arc of the CFO role evolving over that time frame? A great question. And I'll probably come at this answer a little bit more from the tech and the software point of view. But, you know, back to the conversation we were having earlier, when I interviewed the first time for that initial CFO job, the questions I was asked tended to be more, what's your experience managing cash? And what accounting system do you have experience with? And have you built budgets and forecasts, right? It was, I recall it was more centered around that. Today, when I'm interviewing CFOs for my portfolio companies, the questions are very different. I'm asking, you know, how familiar you are with um, terms like ARR, uh, ACV new bookings. What do you think a good uh, gross retention rate is? It's a very different discussion today about what the expectations are. You know, are you familiar with NetSuite, Salesforce, Intact as an integrated system for accounting and sales? it's a very different set of questions. And so what I would tell you is I would say 15 years ago, and this is when I was coming in, I felt like the view of a CFO was more internally focused because I did not have that background. I tended to migrate towards an externally focused CFO. And in order to be successful at doing that, <laughs> you have to have a controller that ironically, I would tell you the controller of today is a CFO 15 years ago in some ways. Um, they're doing a lot of the work, two thirds of the work that CFOs did 15 years ago. And, and that allowed the CFO to become more modern, I think is the word you use, where not only are they doing your standard you know, FP&A work and work on the accounting side, but they could have the renewals team underneath them. They've got legal underneath them. They may have HR underneath them and they may even have certain operations underneath them the role of the cfo has become much more broad and operationally focused and in many cases you know you'd argue the cfo is the number two executive in these companies 
for the most part, and really the, the hopefully the thought leader and the business partner to the CEO. And I think that's really, you know, I would say the main piece on how that role has changed. I think the last thing I would say to that is, is I do remember the role of the CFO is sort of being GNA and it still is today. It's bucketed in as GNA and as a cost center. And, and I would say that I think good modern CFOs find a way to supplement that with parts of the organization that are value creation, revenue enhancing, ARR expanding. And I think good CFOs figure out ways to incorporate that into their, their work. Are there any specific factors that has led to this kind of a change or this kind of an evolution rather? Yeah, you know, gosh, that is a good question, especially in software. I would say that one of the key things that led to that is the um, ability of businesses to go from perpetual license to subscription in SaaS. And that's led to a couple of things. It's led to a different way to think about running a business. When you run a business on perpetual and you're getting cash up front and got this maintenance stream, you know, it's a, it's a little bit different. You have different churn characteristics. You get a lot of cash up front, but you're constantly having to reacquire new customers each year. The revenue recognition is different. When SaaS came about, you had this different mindset, right? You didn't take all the money up front. You took it one twelfth of the time or annually up front. And you moved from always focusing on new logo to focusing on new logo, but ensuring that you've got good retention of those customers. Because the last thing you want to do is lose a customer after only one year. You didn't get all the benefit of probably the sales and marketing effort to get that customer. And so, so ultimately, I think the mindset shift changed to from the CFO having to, to then manage cash, as an example, a little bit more closely, right? You're not getting the dollars up front, which led to the venture community having to invest lots of dollars in this SaaS world um, to help finance the ramp of these subscription businesses. But here's where I think it got better. As folks got figured out how to manage the retention and the customer life cycle, it became very sticky. And the finance community was favorably inclined to sort of debt finance, if you will, that revenue stream. And it became very attractive, great characteristics, recurring revenue, and so on and so forth. And sort of that led to the change of where CFOs would come on board. They'd be able to have to show their lenders a lot of different metrics than they were used to showing. And that gets back to your bookings and your retention rates and the percent of recurring revenue versus non-recurring revenue, because those were some of the key metrics that lenders would focus on, your investors would focus on. And ultimately, as we saw for a good 10-year run, the public markets. That was a very different type of CFO and a, a mind shift than 10 years ago. And so in some respects, uh, recurring revenue, SaaS, subscription models, the cloud enabling that has all, I think, really changed the modern CFO to be more operationally focused and definitely metrics focused to enable not just to meet public market expectations, meet their lender expectations, and then ultimately valuation expectations. Makes a lot of sense. I have a hypothesis uh, around this, which I would love to test with you. Kind of my thought process around this is as businesses have gotten more complex over time, whether it's uh, more digitization, whether it's larger geographies that they can um, tap into, whether it's, you know, people moving in terms of, uh, you know, working remotely, you know, every leg of the process of running a business has gotten more complex. And as CEO is the only person who kind of have an overarching purview across different functions is just that CEO doesn't have enough time in a day to be able to do literally every single thing and then also look at it from a finance perspective as well. 
And that's where the role of the CFOs have really you know, become much more strategic that, hey, there is a person who is looking at every single function, but more from a financial lens than perhaps just from a CEO perspective, who is perhaps looking at things more from a GTM perspective or product perspective or you know, people perspective. No, that's exactly right. And to my earlier point, that's why I do think really good CFOs in today's world can be considered COOs in so many respects. And in fact, this is just my own personal belief as is in my career. Whenever I hire anybody, either it's a VP director level down to a senior analyst, my first question is how good of a communicator are you? And can you sit down with an engineer and have a discussion and understand the product? Can you put the headset on? In fact, we do this, we did this the last company I was at and spend a day with customer support and listen to the calls they feel, right? Understand that. Can you sit down with product and understand what the product requirements document might look like and at least have a conversation so you can shake hands and meet that individual? Um, the point of that is the best finance leaders and the best finance, I think, employees are well-rounded within the entire organization. They're not siloed and just sitting in their in their office banging away at, at models. And that's a large part of their job in many ways. You know, you'll be better at uh, looking at trends, seeing where things don't make sense. If you understand after talking to your, you know, the engineering team, how they store data in AWS, as an example. It's not a finance person's job to understand the details of it, but at least if you ask the question and they tell you there's a storage area and there's a compute area and this is how the costs rise, well, at least you, you know enough to, to ask some questions. And I think that's where the CEO then now relies on this CFO to help ask those questions to your point, Rui, where you may not have the time as a CEO to do that, just relying on your head of engineering or your head of product or DevOps to be focused on that, it's not their skill set either, necessarily. They're working on uptime and getting product out the door and driving engineering excellence. And so I do think having a broad-based finance function of folks, not just at the CFO level, but across the organization leads to you know better performance overall. Makes a ton of sense. You have been part of multiple different organizations and as you enumerated, different sizes of organizations. Would love to pick your mind in terms of creation of teams, you know, finance functions across these different sizes of organizations. How would you go about, let's say, maybe start with an organization of around 40, 50 million of revenues, 200, 250 odd employees. What kind of finance function makes sense for maybe that size of organization, then leading up to maybe 100 odd million of revenue and let's call it around 500 odd employees? I think yeah. uh, that would be that would be interesting to understand. Yeah, no, I mean, good question. There are probably a lot of different ways to go with that answer. I, I would say, though, that, you know, not surprisingly, at, at the lower end of the level of that scale, right, folks are going to be cross-trained in accounting and finance. You'll have discrete departments, but the folks will be doing work on both ends. You're just not big enough to necessarily have a 100% of the function just on FP&A and finance and just on accounting. You're obviously going to have to still at those levels have key accounting functions to close your books on time to start to consider. You may not have it at the time, but your go forward accounting system, you, you know, uh, I've been on companies that had that used QuickBooks to up to $70 million, if you believe it. So you can manage a business still on a non-scalable platform for a while and be OK. So those small businesses, I would say, you might have a controller that's that's solely focused on the accounting side. But if you had two or three other employees, 
your finance person who's building your um, budget is also probably sending out invoices and billing. You might have somebody you know, on the accounting side that's used to just doing uh, AP runs, as an example, or helping out with payroll, but they're also going to be dabbling on some functions within finance. And so I would say in that sub 50, you've got sort of two departments, but it's you can just imagine a, an image with a lot of lines crisscrossing each other. And I think that's OK because that's just the size and scale and the time of the organization at that point. I think as you grow from there, I think the lines start to break apart and you begin to get more discrete functions you know, within, within accounting and finance. And I'd say at that second level, the accounting sort of breaks apart and you really do define your accounting team into your standard you know, accounting function. And then where finance starts to change a little bit in that level is where they start going horizontally across the organization, back to what I was saying before, you might have a couple finance people to support the organization doing some doing FPA and modeling and forecasting and others working across all the different functions. You might have one or two that, that are responsible for sales and sales ops and revenue operations, but they're also talking to product and engineering and, and different departments. So you're, you're running around as a director of finance, not just helping do a forecast for the CFO, but you're really understanding the business across all functions take the next step up to that highest level and you you have the flexibility of having individual finance roles structured to a department so you might have an individual that's solely focused on finance support for product or finance support for sales or engineering and you've got that luxury of of having a little bit of specific skills and that's kind of how I see the formation of finance and accounting expanding between, I think, a small business where everybody's doing a little bit of everything to, to these larger software businesses where you can support departments with the ability to, to manage that with individual finance leaders in, in a way that I think is cost effective. Awesome. That makes a lot of sense. Let's move into a little bit of a hypothetical situation where let's assume I'm a, a new CFO appointed at a company. Would love to understand from you kind of advice on my first 100 days at this company in this new role to be able to set up a really good foundation for long-term success? Yeah, uh, good question. And I do that with a lot of, in this role today, where we onboard, uh, either onboard new CFOs that come on board, or I'm new to a company that we've just acquired. Kind of the three things I would say. Number one is the first thing I think you need to do as a CFO is talk to your stakeholders. And there's kind of two stakeholders. There's you know, back to my external internal, there's, there's the external stakeholders, make sure right out of the gate, you're talking to your investors, you're getting to know them, what makes them tick? What are they looking for? What do they not like? Ask them, you know, hey, what are you missing right now that you don't see if you've either been with the business already or in your diligence that you didn't see? Find what they're saying. Then there's the internal stakeholders, right? Back to my department analogy, go talk to each functional leader that you serve, right? Because you have as a finance leader, you've got internal customers and external customers. You're supporting your internal employees, right? Whether it's processing expense reports to helping them with budget and approving purchase orders or purchase recs for different products and services. Ask them and capture that insight, right? So you got to be a good communicator, step one. I think step two, which I love doing, is then do functional reviews. I would tell every CFO, sit down and even grab your number two and whoever that individual is. Sit down with each functional leader, your head of product, head of sales, spend an hour, ask them to just walk you through their organization and how they manage their teams. Some people get super excited about that and they'll bust out with 40 slides and they'll talk to you for three hours. They love it. 
Um, those functional leaders, they love to talk about what they do. And so you'll get a variety of, you know, I was encouraged, don't make it prescriptive. Just ask them two or three simple questions and see how they respond and absorb all that. Because back to my other point, I think good CFOs have to understand every aspect of the business. Now, you're not going to learn it all in your first two hour session, but you're going to learn enough to get you going. So that's step two, I would say, in your first 100 days, just spend the time getting to meet each functional leader and do a deep dive with at least one other individual in your organization. And then I think step three is you sort of take all that feedback, external and internal stakeholder feedback, your understanding of those functional reviews. And then I think you you look at your own team that you have and the systems that you have. Based on what you just saw and the growth of the business and all the things that you know, evaluate. Do I have the right accounting systems? Do I have the right FP&A forecasting tools? Do I have the right project management software or Salesforce software uh, or CRM software to run this business? And take all those inputs and, and then and I'll, conversely or in parallel, do you have the right team underneath you to get to where you want to go based on what you've heard? And so... It's listening to your stakeholders. It's understanding the business from the perspective of the functional leaders. And then it's it's sort of evaluating your team. And, and if I was presenting that to the board as an example, here's what I did in my first 100 days, then I would get to that sort of punchline and say, based on all that, <laughs> my recommendation is going to be we need to upgrade our accounting system in order to scale. You know, we, we have terrible reporting on these key metrics and you're never going to get what you want unless we either add functionality or scale. And, and, and oh, by the way, I need to hire people over here and let go of people over here because they're they're in the wrong seat. And I think if you focused on those three things in your first 100 days, I think the CFO would be well sort of suited to move forward. Love it. Very cool. Let's talk uh, a little about uh, the relationship of the CEO and CFO. It seems like uh, for from a CFO standpoint, not only the CEO is the manager, but also just from an overall company standpoint, uh, there's a lot of uh, nuances to that relationship that enables the company to do a lot of things or on the perverse, not do many things. So how do you think about that relationship? And if there are any sort of interesting hacks that you have used during your time to foster that relationship? Yeah, you know, good question. And my point of view, when I went down this, this journey, you know, 15 years ago, was that I took on the belief that the CFO needed to be the basically the business partner, the right hand person to that CEO, that that CEO could lean on in good times and bad and to share frustrations, opportunities, right? Obviously, you've got engineering and product and strategy, but there needs to be one individual that can be that business partner. And, and I felt that was the CFO's job. And so, you know, my number one criteria, and I looked at those roles was how is my relationship going to be with that CEO? Because I think in order for me to be effective, we need to communicate well, they need to trust me, you know, to make it effective. Doesn't always work that way, but that was my uh, goal. My second goal was if I did my job right, I would enable the CEO to scale. And why or what's that? Does that mean they go off on the beach and do nothing? No, it's you want, especially in investments where in companies where you've got a time horizon, uh, likely where you've got, you know, an, an outcome that needs to happen. You want your CEO thinking strategically, working strategically getting out of the day-to-day -day weeds that may slow that individual down. And so always took that as a challenge. 
to, and in fact, we would, when you do one-on-ones with your CEO, I, I would always ask that question, what can I take off your plate? And I think if you ask that question to CEO, you'll get interesting answers, but you'll realize the CEO says, well, gosh, I do this all the time. And I'm like, why do you do that every day? Like that's, you shouldn't be doing that. And you'll find <laughs> when you ask that question, you'll find that. And so, so, you know, continually refreshing that to ensure that the CEO is focused on the strategic things and, and allows the CFO, I think, to take some of that off their plate. Now, the CFO doesn't do all those things necessarily. I'll take some of that stuff off his plate, but it's also my job to quarterback it and say, gosh, if you're doing these three things every week, you know, that should be done by this individual, by that individual. And, and I'll tell you what, why don't we take that off your plate and we'll come back and, and just share with you the output and save you a lot of time. So I think that would probably be my favorite hack is just uh, in your one-on-ones asking that question about every two or three weeks. Talk to me about what's taking a lot of your time right now and let's debate whether you should be you should be focused on that or not. Makes a ton of sense. You know, right now it's a pretty peculiar environment that we are living in from a financial or a business standpoint, where every company has been forced to change their focus a lot more on the profitability side. What kind of conversation are you having with CEOs, CFOs, especially to be able to navigate these times? And, you know, by definition, your portfolio in general is anyways more profitable, right? So they don't hopefully perhaps have a kind of an existential crisis, right? But then maybe for the general audience uh, where a few of the companies might actually have, you know, a really tough time to be able to get to the profitability, they may not be profitable right now. So what kind of advice, what kind of conversations are you having with CEOs and CFOs, especially around the current uh, market environment? Well, it's, it's, you know, it's uh, very different conversations than we've had over the last 10 years. I mean, for sure. You know, 2008, I, I referred to that a, a while back in this conversation. You know, that was a big jolt to tech and to the economy, but it was, it was kind of short-lived. And I don't think it was met with the double whammy that we're facing today, maybe even the, the triple headwinds that we're facing today of a lackluster macro environment of drastically increased interest rates and a tough funding environment. You kind of have almost triple headwinds today. I think CFOs have faced one, maybe two of those three over the last 10 years, but they've never, <laughs> they've rarely faced all three. And so if you, if you kind of go back, you know, and part of that is, is, is no one's fault. It's just um, the market paid for growth. The public markets paid for growth. And because financing was cheap, both equity and debt, and the economy generally was good during that period, CFO's job was to drive top line growth. And so focusing on profitable growth was not a thing. You know, fast forward to today, um, the market dynamics have changed. And that's the thing about being a CFO. You got to be flexible, right? It doesn't mean the world's always going to be profitable growth for the next 50 years. But for the foreseeable future, that is sort of the world that we live in. You know, Orlando Bravo has talked a lot about that, about profitable growth. Luckily, Toma Bravo has had that mantra for a long, long time. And so most of our CFOs have heard about that concept um, and have thought about that concept, and we've managed our businesses to that. So I kind of feel like we've had a little bit of a head start in this world because of just the way that we've managed our companies, but it's different. And so you may be a CFO who, who has never had to experience cost cuts, who's never had to walk through significant layoffs, who has to gets a goal on how to squeeze vendors on fees to push their own team for price increases in an inflationary environment on product. Everybody's afraid to do that. Well, you got you to focus on that. 
and then managing cash at a level where you can't just lob in a phone call to Silicon Valley Bank to increase your line anymore or to you know, raise another round of venture money at, a, at an up round. That is a, a difficult environment. And so, you know, one of the things that have, you know, we're working with our, our businesses, if you think about a, almost a graph here where, where historically you've had good bookings momentum and an upward trajectory in a good environment and very stable, if you look at a second line, very stable interest rate environment, which means your interest expense is generally the same. Well, those two lines have started to diverge, right? You've got the interest rate expense line going up. You've got bookings and macroeconomics going down. And now this gap, this sort of, I would call it this cash gap or this profitability gap, which used to be very stable and you can manage, has bifurcated very quickly. And if you weren't paying attention and are not paying attention to that um, in this environment, it's going to catch you off guard. And so, you know, a lot of folks in this environment have need to manage to that, need to ensure that um, the businesses are, are managed in a way to minimize that risk, that cash risk that can occur in a, in a tough, I'd saw this triple headwind where you've got a tough macro environment, you've got high interest rate environment where many of the software companies are, are debt financed. And then you've got sort of a, a quiet or a, a slow financing environment on top of that. And I think those companies that manage through this I don't know, this 12 to 24 month period, the best are going to come out of it uh, with great results. The triple headwind uh, is, is quite an intriguing concept to think about. And I think every CFO has to think about how to navigate all those three vectors. Yeah, it, I mean, it's new. It's new for everybody, I would say. I mean, some people may, may roll their eyes at that, but I do think trying to manage all three of those at once is definitely new muscle for, I think, the growth-minded CFO that, yeah. um, that, to be honest with you, it's been that way in this sector for 10 years. Yeah, I, I totally concur. When I joined Zenoti, within five months, COVID hit. When I joined, it was basically growth on all uh, kind of fronts. And that's kind of where the focus was. And then all of a sudden, right, like, we didn't even know if we are going to get enough money from all of our customers, like for, you know, subscription customers. But there is no way if they're shut that they're going to pay the same uh, amount that we were supposed to receive every month. And so, yeah, that was uh, yeah. interesting times to and, be able to even I, just I, I change think, the mindset around it. That's right. And I do think COVID, it's fair to say COVID gave, I think, the modern CFO, if you will, a taste of what one or two of those headwinds could look like. No doubt in a short period mm. of time, you had to react quickly. But the investing in the finance environment and the interest rate environment hadn't switched yet. And so although the macro environment took a big tumble, kind of like it did in 08 with COVID, you still had two tailwinds in financing market and interest rate and the interest rates being low that enabled folks in that seat to, I think, manage through that as best they could. You know, whereas today, I think, although I do think things are improving, there's still triple headwinds that are kind of uh, beaten up against you. I'm curious to ask after, I mean, especially in these kind of triple headwind kind of market situation, how many scenarios are CFOs planning? Like, you know, in typical times, you have three scenarios, you know, bull case, bear case, and base case. How many scenarios are people planning for these days? Yeah, you know, I think it just depends on the market that you're in. I will say, though, I think, I don't think it's as bad as, as maybe we're, we're making it out to be from the standpoint of, you know, we don't know how bad it can get. I think we know where we are and it's relatively stable today. It's just a headwind. It's not necessarily, you know, is there a second or third shoe to drop? 
I don't think there's necessarily that fear. So I do think the initial scenario building was probably Q3, Q4 of last year. I would say that was when I think folks weren't exactly sure of if there were a second, third or fourth shoe to drop, how far interest rates would climb. Is the macro environment continuing to erode and is there a recession? I think if you fast forward to today, six months after that period, I think we feel a little bit better about the predictability of where we are today. And so scenario planning six months ago was different in terms of, hey, over the next 12 months, what do we think our our interest expense may be? Or over the next 12 months, what do we think our bookings growth may be in this tough environment? And therefore, where's where's our, our cost base need to be? That's where the scenario planning was done, I would say, the latter part of last year. I think this year, we're sort of looking at our scenario planning and how we're doing to that. And so the variability off of that is is much smaller than it was, I'd say, six months ago. So I think that we're on the back end of that, given that things have generally stabilized. We kind of know we're in a little bit of a, of a slow economy. We're in a generally a high interest rate environment, but is it going to go up that much more? It's a little bit easier to predict that today than it was you know, six months ago. Good to know that people have already adjusted to the new reality. Well, hopefully they have. I know we have. <laughs> I know we have. Very cool. Let's change gears a little bit. You know, during your career, you have been part of multiple acquisitions, M&A transactions in general, whether on the buy side or on the sell side. From statistics perspective, majority of the acquisitions do not work, right? Yet there are large strategic buyers that are buying sort of companies of different sizes. There are private equity firms that are uh, doing this for a living. So there has to be some unique framework or you know, something interesting that they have been able to figure out that others have not in terms of how to make M&A work, right? So can you maybe share some light in terms of what makes an acquisition work versus what makes an acquisition to fail? Yeah, yeah great question. Lots of moving parts to this, but I, you know, I've done enough to, I think, have a pattern of what seems to have a better probability of working than not. Um, nothing, you know, too crazy, but a couple of thoughts that really, that I would sort of say, hey, there's probably, you know, once again, I love talking about three key things. But number one is you have to have a clear strategy as to why the acquisition makes sense. And, and a colleague of mine shared this little tidbit and said to, to a, one of our CEOs, hey, I want to do this acquisition. It's great. We said, great. Before you do anything, I want you to write us a one page press release of what the press release would sound like as to why you bought this business. And it made that individual scribble down. You know, you all read those PR press releases that says company A bought company B and, and here's why. And if you can't quickly articulate the why is probably, you know, take a step back and say, is this really making sense? And so call it the press release test. Do you have a strategy? Can you articulate that a strategy in a one page press release effectively? Step two, and I say this a lot, but you have to have management and executive buy-in on that strategy. If you don't have executive buy-in on that strategy, it's going to be a long haul. And so communicate, empower your executive team, get them inspired, fire them up about it, get that management team to buy into that strategy and make sure they're aligned on why it makes sense. Because ultimately it's those individual executives that have to drive the integration and change. And if you've got the majority of those executives that are rolling their eyes and saying this doesn't make any sense, it's going to fail. That would be sort of point number two. 
And, and to that, you know, you can't bring everybody in every time, but I'm a big believer in when you're doing your diligence and you're doing your work, incorporate more than less of leaders in that organization. Set up a task force, set up leaders in the organization, have them participate. You enable them to participate in a diligence session. They feel ownership. Um, they feel the desire to want to wanna make it work. Then I think the third thing, and this one's a little bit more challenging, is integration. And on integration, I think lessons learned here is do it fast, do it faster, do it fastest. <laughs> do it soon, do it, do it sooner. If you let integrations drag on, I think it slows the value creation down. It's going to be more painful to combine a sales force right out of the gate. It's going to be more painful to figure out org structure for an in, to, to combining engineering departments, of which inevitably you're going to have some, some folks that don't fit into the new org structure. It's going to be painful to try to combine two accounting systems and get to one payroll system. All this is going to be challenging, but the sooner you get it behind you, the better. And I can tell you for every acquisition that I've been a part of in one side or the other, where it's dragged on and you finally get it done, you do your postmortem and everybody says, in hindsight, we should have done this way sooner. And that rarely, you rarely hear someone say, no, it was perfect that we waited, you know, 18 months to combine the two sales forces. And so I think the last piece of, I think my experience, right? So <laughs> the CEO press release strategy, make sure it fits management buy-in at the next level down and focus on quick integration. Um, usually those, you got a higher chance of success if you follow those three steps. Love the PR test, makes a ton of sense. Is there some difference between a product acquisition versus a revenue acquisition and how does those two play out based on these sort of uh, three different vectors that you talked about? Those are two completely different cases. You know, in, in some cases, yeah, you are looking to scale the business and and only looking to buy revenue. I think if in, in order for those to be effective, though, it's got to come with significant integration and sort of cost restructuring, right, to get the benefit of that. It's always, I think, a bad idea to think of always getting revenue synergies from an acquisition where, hey, you know, you can easily cross sell these products and you're going to get even a, a bigger lift than what the revenue is. I think that's you, you got to believe that will happen. But I think you have to think about that business without that, right? And you have to earn that right, earn that value over time. So I do think revenue is not a bad strategy if you need to buy it, but it's got to come with the right expectations. I think products are very different buy, right? It could be a, a feature gap. It could be um, an engineering hole that you need to fill, you know, and I think you've got to recognize that, you know, that that's likely not going to be an accretive transaction from a profitability standpoint, but you've got to believe that it's, it's going to create value either in the time horizon for which, you know, as an investor and as a management team, you've got the time to realize that value that comes out of those product acquisitions. Maybe it takes out a competitor, which helps you in the long run, but it's a little bit harder on product only to ensure that you're getting the value creation that you want in a timely fashion. Makes sense. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk uh, a little more on you personally. Tell us what motivates you today, Pete. Uh, you've seen an amazing career from the accounting side of things to being a banker to being a CFO operator and now an advisor. So you know you've seen that whole arc. What keeps you going today? Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, good question. Look, I think for me. I love the journey of value creation and watching, you know, a business sort of morph into a great business, great businesses, excellent businesses, good to great, whatever you want to define it. 
you know, I think myself personally, I'm a you know competitive person. I enjoy winning in a good way. I enjoy hitting quarterly sales numbers uh, just as much as the sales guy or gal does. I enjoy that aspect of it. And I think what the excitement and inspiration I get in these is watching these teams build cohesive teams, grow the business and create value. I think that is one of the key things that keeps me going. I think number two, and I, I mentioned this earlier, I'm always learning. And I think if you're constantly learning and you're constantly wanting to learn, you'll never get bored and you'll always want to uh, continue to find ways to grow and help uh, organizations. And I'm, I'm just a constant learner. And I would say I always learning new things in this role, even with some of the folks that I'm supposed to be coaching, they're teaching me new things each time as well. And then I think the, the third piece of it is team building, right? And I do think as I've gone through my career and sort of seen the next generation come up, I do get satisfaction at watching my peers and my team members grow into those roles and be successful in those roles. And I think that energy and excitement that I get of watching these teams create value, grow their own careers, have success uh, is, is exciting for me. Maybe the last piece I would say too is technology is always changing. I've been in software and technology now for 20 plus years in some capacity, either as a, a CFO or a banker or, or now as an operating partner. Maybe that goes into the learning part of what I was talking about earlier, but uh, I love the change. I love the new businesses that we get to work with. Um, everything from you know healthcare and leading uh, software that's supporting cardiovascular to automation technology for credit unions and banks. I mean, the whole gamut is exciting to me. And seeing that new technology spur and watching those businesses grow is something that will keep me uh, excited to keep doing this work for plenty of years. Very cool. It's no joke that the role of the CFO is quite demanding. And I'm sure during your career, you came across many situations, you know, which can be defined as shit hit the fan kind of situations. Wanted to understand how did you keep your calm during those situations and navigated those uh, choppy waters? Yeah, well, you know, in yourself, Reed, I mean, we, you know, we had the opportunity to meet each other years ago and um, I had been a banker, you were in the investment banking world. And, you know, I kind of think my experience growing up in that world, kind of learning what works and what doesn't work, right? I think any good leader takes the good and the bad from their experiences. And so, you know, I think uh, being self-aware was sort of my number one thing I took away that I brought to my organization. And what I mean by that is, You've got to understand, I think, the the limits of the benefit that you get to when the shit hits the fan. What can you get out of your team? And I think if you're aware of that, you understand, I think, that the people you work with, the teams that you work with, you've been a good listener, you understand what makes them tick and motivate, you can weather that storm relatively easy. If you're completely blind to that and you, you just got your blinders on and you're going down that path folks are going to fall off the bus, right? Or they're going to hear selectively what they want to hear. And so I would say, you know, in my experience, if you spend the time early on getting to know your teams, get to know what motivates them, get to know how to inspire them, they'll go through walls for you. They will work through those tenuous times, those challenging times when somebody's asking for a 46 uh, points on a diligence request list and they want it by tomorrow morning. And your team is looking at you and they, there's just no way, you know, you've got a way to give them a triple clap and say, you've got this and they got to feel like you've got their back. And I think those that are successful at sort of building that trust and building that inspiration within their teams can weather those storms. I think those that that are blind to that or, or lacking the EQ, 
I think are going to struggle with that. Trust and inspire. Love it. Look, this is uh, an intriguing conversation. I think we can continue to talk about varied topics, but uh, we do have time constraints. So I would love to move now to a lightning round. Should be simple. I'll ask some simple questions and all I need is immediate responses from you. Sure. All right. Let's do it. So uh, let's get going. Uh, sweet or savory? Sweet. Books or podcast? Books. Thinker or doer? A doer. Movies or web series? Movies. LinkedIn or Twitter? LinkedIn. Scotch or wine? Uh, now, this age, scotch for sure. All right. Introvert or extrovert? I've been straddling and I've moved over my career, so I'm more of an extrovert than I used to be. Uh, mountains or beaches? Beaches. Surfing or kayaking? There you go. As I'm pointing to my surfboard in the back, it's surfing for sure. All right. Growth or profitability? Ah, boy, profitability for sure. All right. Ash is king. Oh. <laughs> what is your one hidden talent? Oh, gosh. I'm not sure I've got a very hidden talent that I, I play wagon wheel on the guitar better than anybody. That would be my one hidden talent. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Ideal place to retire. You know, I mentioned I'm a, I'm a beach person and I'm in uh, the Southern California area. So I think I've mm -hmm. found a really nice area where I, I might hang up my, uh, my boots at the right time. Very cool. Uh, number one thing on your bucket list right now. Number one on my bucket list, as a sports fan, I had the pleasure of going to the Kentucky Derby this year as a bucket list. And um, the Masters as a golf person has always been a bucket list item for me. And so it would be an honor if I could grab my dad and do that in the next few years. Very cool. Who is your role model, uh, personally or professionally, either ways? I wouldn't say it's one individual, you know, but I would say I have learned from three or four great CEOs and I've picked a little bit from each. You know, I've, I would say that would be, um, I would blend them together to say that the how I've molded myself as a leader is a combination of a lot of role models. You know, I would say though, my first CEO from, uh, from ID Analytics, Bruce Hansen, is probably the most influential person who taught me the most, uh, just because I had not experienced leadership uh, at that stage before and uh, has been a great mentor and friend of mine. Very cool. One thing that can make you right now 10 times more productive, or perhaps if you look back at your CFO tenures, would have made you 10 times more productive then? There's a blessing and a curse to what happened in COVID. And as we're even doing a podcast and a video today, uh, 10 years ago, I think this, this type of technology and innovation does make folks more effective. And, um, and I would say just a little business and efficient, a business hint, as painful as it can be, creating daily standups. I know this is more of a of an agile and an engineering development, but using that in the finance and the operations world to get folks back to my, you know, inspire, communicate, and empower. If you can do those three things each morning, even in 15 minutes to get everybody aligned, you're going to be a heck of a lot more effective and efficient. If I used to do that, I do that today. If I did that 10 years ago, I think I would have been even better off. Very cool. And the last one, describe yourself in three words. Uh, motivated, competitive, dad. 
All right. Very cool. Peter, this has been a great show. Thanks a lot again for taking the time. And I really hope to see you again. Yeah, thanks, Ravi. Appreciate it. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you'll find at least one nugget that is beneficial to you. As always, thanks for listening to Strategy of Finance. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us on Apple or Google Podcasts. Your comments will make us better. And be sure to tune in next week for another engaging conversation. Until then, this is Rohit Agarwal, and remember to learn, grow, and inspire.